This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Cordelia Fine. Cordelia is a psychologist, author and professor in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne. She joined me to talk about the real science of sex differences, drawing from her 2017 book, Testosterone Rex, and her recent essay in Eon magazine called Sexual Dinosaurs. We also discuss issues of gender bias in areas like neuroscience. This conversation took place during National Science Week. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm delighted to have with me Professor Cordelia Fine, who is a psychologist, an author, and a professor in the History and Philosophy of Science program at the University of Melbourne. And uh, we're going to be talking all about uh, a few things, but in particular, the science of sex differences and a couple of pieces that Cordelia Fine has written. One is a very well-known book, Testosterone Rex, and also another more recent essay on a related note called Sexual Dinosaurs, which was published in Eon magazine on the 28th of July this year. So I welcome Professor Cordelia Fine now, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Amy. It's really great to have you back on the show, um, because I know that we spoke on the show in 2017, which feels like a lifetime ago now. And um, in the meantime, between that time that uh, we first spoke, um, this book, Testosterone Rex, has done so well and has been really well received across the world and uh, even won a really important award in the UK. I wonder if you could share with us that development and what that meant for you. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was the book was awarded the Royal Society Science Book Prize in 2017. And that was really quite an extraordinary honour. Um, obviously, the Royal Society is, I think, one of the oldest scientific societies in the world and very prestigious. Um, so it obviously meant a huge amount to me for my book to have been awarded their Science Book Prize. And I think in particular, what I, you know, what was wonderful for me was you know, the book Testosterone Rex, and I'm sure we'll come on to talk about this a bit more, but the book is full of this sort of evolving scientific story. And it often features the work of um, women scientists who kind of were challenging assumptions and asking different questions and pushing the science forward and the scientific accounts forward. And for their work to kind of get this recognition through this prize was, was also very special to me. Mm, that's a really great point. There are so many fantastic women scientists in your book. It's great that they've been amplified and that, I mean, the more that scientists are aware of this research and how important it is and what the nuances of the findings are, the more likely presumably scientists are to pick up where those scientists left off to pursue other angles and to follow up on different questions that were yet to be answered. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think one of the things that I really like about the work that I do when I sort of, you know, take a question and then synthesize the research from quite a broad range of disciplines and approaches that, and how, how those kinds of approaches have tried to answer the question is that, you know, in academic work, 
it, you, you do tend to be a bit siloed and you, you work within your dis disciplines and you work within a sort of set of um, shared assumptions and you're not, you're not necessarily always familiar with how other disciplines or other fields are sort of approaching the same phenomenon. And so mm. what's nice about the kind of work that I do, which, which can be a bit broader, I mean, obviously it sort of uh, necessarily lacks the same kind of depth, but having that breadth means that you're, you're, you're kind of taking a, a wider lens on a particular phenomenon. And then when you write in an accessible way, in a way that sort of reaches a broader audience, it's not just for the, the sort of general public, but it can also perhaps be helpful for scientists who work from a particular perspective or in a particular discipline to say, oh, this is how psychologists think about this phenomenon. This is how neuroscientists think about it. This is how evolutionary scientists are, are thinking about it. And perhaps also how those ideas are changing in a way that perhaps you, you hadn't, been, hadn't been aware of. Yeah, that's so true. And we'll get to how science is done because you, you look at that in more detail in your essay for Eon magazine, Sexual Dinosaurs. But I do want to first pick up on some of the basic areas and themes of testosterone wrecks so that we have a grounding in some of those ideas that you examine, particularly some of the really old ideas that have been really accepted wisdom that have shaped the way that we think about males and females, not just humans, but also males and females in the animal kingdom as well, and our expectations of their behaviour, certainly being based on what their sex is, what mix of hormones and extent of hormones they have coursing through them. So first of all, let's talk about some of those basic principles that really have come or sprung from Charles Darwin, inspired by Charles Darwin. And I'm thinking particularly Angus Bateman, the 20th century biologist who you refer to, and he takes a popular view of sexual selection. And we now know these kind of views on sexual selection as Bateman's principles. And I wonder if you could take us through that and what these early ideas and principles are that have since shaped the way that scientists have thought of males and females. So Angus Bateman, as you said, was a 20th century biologist. And the study that he did has just been incredibly influential and, and also important. It was a very inventive study. It was actually to test a prediction from Darwin's theory of sexual selection. So we all kind of understand the principle that natural selection works because some individuals are more successful than others. And that's a kind of that variation is a basis for selection to act meaning that certain kinds of phenotypes will then become more prevalent in the population than the less successful ones. And so the idea is that sexual selection acts in the same kind of way. And Darwin had this idea that sexual selection was acting more strongly on males than on females. And what Bateman wanted to do was to test the idea that, well, if this is the case, then what we should be seeing is greater range of success in males than in females. So, you know, the way to think about it is if you've got with males, you've got some males are fantastically successful in terms of their reproductive success. They're producing lots and lots of offspring, whereas some males are having no success at all, whereas females are all sort of, they're quite close to this average. Most are sort of, most are doing fine, but there are none that are sort of fantastically successful and none that are dismal, dismal failures in, in the reproductive stakes then you can see that sexual selection will be acting more strongly on males than on females. 
And so Bateman was interested in testing this hypothesis and he did it with fruit flies. And at that time, it was sort of restricted in terms of, you know, there wasn't genetic testing where you could find out who were the fathers and mothers of each of the offspring. So he had to sort of work his way around that using different kinds of genetic mutations. What he was interested in is working out how many mates, particular males and females, had had, and then how many um, offspring they'd had. And the prediction was that, that there would be this correlation between males, between the number of mates they had and the number of offspring that they produced, but that this would not be the case or would be less so for females. This is an idea that's really familiar to all of us. We're really familiar with this story of reproduction being cheap in males. So, you know, it's just this single tiny little sperm. <laughs> that's the sort of sole contribution potentially of the male to the reproductive process. Whereas in females, even when you're talking about, say, fruit flies, you're talking about a, the egg, which is much larger. It's a sort of relatively big, juicy kind of thing. And then, of course, when we're talking about mammals, we're talking about a sort of lengthy gestation, lactation, and perhaps months or years of maternal care. So it's a much more expensive prospect. And so we are kind of familiar with this idea and that it leads to this idea that males will be, in a sense, designed to compete for many females because that's a, a really good way of trying to ensure that they hit the reproductive jackpot. Whereas females, because reproduction is very expensive for them, they're going to sort of reserve their eggs for the best possible males. And you can see the logic to why you would expect this correspondence between male reproductive success and the number of mates that they have, but not for females, because, you know, you just need one sperm to do the, to do the business with you if you're a female, if you're talking about mammals. So that's what Bateman investigated, and it appeared that his results did indeed support this hypothesis. It didn't get a lot of attention at the time, but then an evolutionary biologist, Robert Trivers, elaborated these results into this idea that I've just talked about, this very familiar idea, this idea of greater female investment in reproduction, and this idea of cheap sperm leads to competitive males, expensive eggs, etc., leading to chaste, coy females is, of course, now a very sort of familiar idea. Exactly. And I know that when there was a later analysis of all of Bateman's data, the kind of conclusions that he reached were not the conclusions that those later scientists reached when they looked at the data as a pool. Yes, that's right. So it was two biologists, Patricia Gowty and Brian Snyder, and having seen the impact of this particular study on evolutionary biology and our sort of understanding of sex roles, they thought it was kind of interesting that nobody had really gone back and looked at this study, you know, to just to see to what extent it, it bore up to scrutiny. And, you know, what they found was that and they paid due acknowledgement to, first of all, the sort of technical constraints that Bateman was operating under, and also, you know, that statistical techniques have, have improved since, since 1948 when his study was published. But essentially what they found was that Bateman had looked at a number of different series of fruit flies, and for some reason he kind of broke off two of the series and analysed them separately to some of the others. And... There was no obvious reason as to why he would have separated out those particular series. And when Gowarty and Snyder kind of pulled all the data together and, and reanalyzed it, 
they couldn't actually find any statistical basis for the claim that female promiscuity didn't actually increase their reproductive success. And another biologist had previously sort of noted that actually the separating the two series, the different series had, had actually come up with different results. So there was one that didn't show any effect on females of promiscuity of having multiple mates. But in the other series, in fact, as with males, though, to a lesser degree, females were actually increasing reproductive success with the number of mates that they had. But for some reason, those findings didn't get emphasis in the original paper. And then as this study was sort of cited again and again and again in the literature, again, it was the sort of findings that were consistent with this idea that promiscuity is only beneficial for males. That kind of got... Uh, carried on in the scientific literature. So as the scientists said, it was a kind of a form of confirmation bias, the evidence that didn't kind of fit with this idea of competitive males and chaste females was somehow lost from, from the scientific literature and the scientific discussion. These are really interesting reanalyses because they show that even when we're talking about fruit flies, <laughs> there's, there's something beneficial to females from having more than one mate. And Bateman's logic seems kind of unassailable, right? But here there's obviously something more complicated going on. We wouldn't expect females to benefit from mating with more than one male, yet it seems that they do. And this is really part of this whole shift or evolution, for want of a better word, <laughs> in thinking about this scientific story. So here, here's this Thing that people thought was the sort of overridingly important thing in determining sex roles, which was, you know, cheap sperm, expensive egg and gestation and so on. Actually, here's something that we don't predict from that sort of simple story. So it seems like there are other kinds of factors that we need to take into account. So it's not to say that this discrepancy between egg versus sperm, etc., that the reproductive investment is irrelevant. It is relevant, but it's just that there are many other factors playing a part. It's interesting, really, that notion of female promiscuity that you examine in Testosterone Rex. You were writing about a few examples that I just found fascinating and also show that we knew that there were these exceptions to the supposed rule quite a while ago. Um, you were just talking there of 1948 and, of course, the social norms of behaviour and gender norms in the 1940s and 50s. It may have been quite shocking and salacious to suggest that promiscuity benefits females and reproductive success in fruit flies because that might mean that women might start to um, take up this idea. But then also you write that in the 1960s and 70s, it was noticed that big cats like the lioness might during estrus mate as many as 100 times a day with multiple lions. And then you also go on to identify another very important study that's really been quite groundbreaking, which was by Sarah Blaffer-Hardy, a behavioral ecologist who in her very early years as a scientist and academic was studying the black-faced langur monkeys in India. I wonder if you could share with us that example, because it seems like that's another excellent example of how things aren't as they seem. Yeah, that's right. So um, I think this was her work as a graduate student and it was a very male-dominated field, primatology, and so she was sort of part of, you know, the sort of women breaking down some of the doors to science and sort of finally being included as, as scientific practitioners. 
And, you know, perhaps unsurprisingly, they were a bit more interested in what the females were doing. So in the traditional models, everything interesting was happening <laughs> with the males. So the, the females were just the sort of vessel for the reproduction of the most successful males. And when female primatologists came in, they were kind of a bit more interested in what was actually happening in the lives of the females and what they were up to. And Sarah Blafahadi, I guess, was one example of someone who was sort of interested in what's going on with the females. And as you said, she was interested in these Lango monkeys and she observed that actually at particular times they were sort of crossing over to other troops and having sexual activity with males uh, in these other troops. And this was sort of really extraordinary because, you know, according to this sort of traditional account of sex roles and sexual behaviour, this shouldn't as she said, like this, this behavior shouldn't have existed. Apparently anthropologists have this expression, if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't have seen it. <laughs> so it's sort of like, there, you know, it's now recognized that female promiscuity, for want of a better word, um, or female multiple mating is kind of abundant through the animal kingdom. And yet somehow it had managed to remain unobserved uh, for such a long time. And, and so this was a really important study because it did challenge this sort of rather simple account of what's going on in sex roles. You know, males are competing and sexually active and females are sort of waiting for the, the best, best, most successful high status male to, to mate with them and showing that uh, actually female activity is, is important, that there are clearly some kind of benefit to females from this kind of behaviour and you know, interesting questions about what this might be. And it also opened the door to something else really important, which was this idea of the importance of female competition. So there'd been a, a sort of focus on male competition in evolutionary biology. And there was a sort of dawning recognition that actually it is important to females. Uh, there isn't just a sort of assumption that any mediocre female can achieve the sort of small feat of getting herself impregnated that actually a female status in the world, for example, and her access to feeding sites or to a good territory or a good nest, that's also going to have implications for her reproductive success. So actually, there's been argued to be stronger links between a female's status and her reproductive success than males. And this was something that had been, you know, really overlooked for, for many, many years. But when you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense for example, looking at studies in chimpanzees, they found that the female's status in the dominance hierarchy was associated with how often the females were able to reproduce and the kind of success that the likelihood of their, of their offspring of surviving and thriving. And when you think about it, that actually, that actually makes sense, but it had been kind of invisible for a very long time. And, and as I said, it, it was often the work of, of women in this case, primatologists, that started to challenge these old assumptions. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. And there was one other example of the importance of competition and promiscuity for females that I was really shocked by, which was looking at primates, particularly the low-ranking females, which apparently can have their ovulation suppressed by nearby dominant females or they can also be harassed by other females so much that they spontaneously abort their pregnancy. That is just a fascinating link between reproductive biology and the behaviour between females. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it really challenges the stereotype of, you know, females is all nicey-nicey, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> sure does. 
So in terms of this idea, looking at it in another way, and you do challenge the idea of males just throwing their sperm around willy-nilly and being not particularly choosy as to who they decide to copulate with. You also give some examples of where males can be pretty choosy in terms of their mating partners as well. You quote one biologist as saying, the antiquated notion that males can produce virtually unlimited numbers of sperm at little cost is demonstrably incorrect. And then you go on to cite a spider species where the males run out of sperm after mating just once. And obviously in that circumstance, one ejaculation may not be enough to ensure fertilization of the female, but there's also these other kind of costs and risks and levels of energy that's required where it seems that males become more and more choosy depending on these kind of environmental situations and contexts. One that was really kind of amusing to me was one of your colleagues at Melbourne University, Mark Elgar, has some interesting male stick insects that are offered a mating opportunity every week. And you write that despite apparently having nothing more demanding to do all day than resemble a stick, they only rouse themselves to take up this mating opportunity 30 to 40% of the time. That really does also challenge some pretty big stereotypes around male behavior in reproductive situations. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, you know, clearly we're not spiders, we're not stick insects, (laughs) but I think the importance of these kinds of you know, they, they point to the diversity of the way that sex roles operate in, in the animal kingdom. So it's this part of this shift away from this sort of, you know, standard story that was assumed to apply more or less universally, with the exceptions being, you know, the few species where the investment by the female was kind of biologically more expensive than that of the male, where there's sort of, then there's the reversal of the sex roles where the, the females become competitive and, and the males become choosy. But just to show that across the animal kingdom, different species are, are solving these, this problem of how to get reproduction done in all different kinds of ways and with different kinds of constraints, depending on their physiology, depending on their ecology and so on. And so although there are clearly there are sort of systematic factors that are influencing the animal sex roles, you have to take each species, not just on an individual basis, but also think about, well, what's the particular social and ecological context for this species? So so one example is um, actually a kind of bush cricket. And this is one of the examples where actually because part of the reproductive courtship, I guess the mating courtship is that the male brings this sort of (laughs) to the female tasty sort of sperm package uh, to her as part of the courtship. So that's actually quite expensive for him. And so, you know, females will compete for access to the, to the male. So a kind of reversal of those traditional sex roles. But research has found that if you change the ecology of these bush crickets so that there's, there's plenty of nutrition in the environment, the females are like, you know what, I can't, you know, it's not, I can't be bothered anymore. Um, and so this is kind of, um, you know, I can, I, can, I can get my snacks another way. So there's this kind of, you know, reversal of what we would normally, you know, traditionally assume to be kind of wired in, right? Mm. And, and you can see that both, you know, with experimental manipulations and also with the sort of just natural variations in animals' ecology. So another example are hedge sparrows. So hedge sparrows can um, show a kind of a a kind of quite astonishing array of sex roles in the sense that 
you know, sometimes they'll end up in, you know, monogamous relationships. Sometimes you'll have one female with two males. <clears throat> sometimes you'll have one male with two females. Sometimes you have two females sharing two males, right? So very versatile. And it seems to depend on things like the territory size of the female or how well uh, females and males are matched in fighting ability. So, you know, these are all kind of contingent factors. But I think the important thing is it shows that even in animals that we would probably think of as not being kind of strongly influenced by their social context or having something that we really think of as culture in the same way as humans, you know, these sex roles are diverse, not just across the animal kingdom, but also diverse even within a particular species. That's a kind of warning flag for us to not think about our own sex roles as being too rigid or, or hardwired. And coming back to the point that you made before about the sort of cost of sex for males, one really key aspect of human sexuality that has really often been overlooked, and again, it's often women who have drawn attention to it, is how inefficient human sexual activity is. So many species, sexual activity is hormonally coordinated. So you know, there's particular periods when conception can happen, and sexual activity is kind of very efficient. It's like, oh, you know, check the Outlook diary. Here's when we all have to mate. And, you know, there's a very high success, success rate in terms of reproduction. And obviously that's not how uh, human sexuality takes place. Uh, so there's this wonderful paper by the psychologist Dorothy Einan. She was actually a, um, on the faculty when I was doing my PhD at UCL. And she, she asks us to imagine a woman who has sex once a week for 30 years and has nine children, which is obviously, you know, a pretty decent number of children to have. Well, you know, just some simple arithmetic reveals that for each child that she has, she's having sex 173 times. Now, if you think about that from the male perspective, that means that, you know, the, the male who's having sex with this hypothetical woman is not sort of, you know, you have sex and then there's a child at the end of it. There's going to be a lot of uh, a sexual activity that is non-productive, right? Mm. Um, and, and that needs to be taken into account when we think about, we have to shift away from this thinking about, well, you can just spread your sperm and, you know, you'll end up with thousands of, thousands of children. There are sort of specific circumstances in which males may actually be able to produce very, very high numbers of offspring, but there are specific kinds of circumstances. And there's no reason to think that the sort of psychology to be driven towards that kind of approach to reproductive success will be hardwired into the brain of males. And it's great to focus on the human species now because you bring into the discussion something that is, you know, very popularized and it's not just a notion in science, but it's also a notion in the broader society. It's echoed and reflected out. Um, a million times and you give so many great examples and it's this idea of testosterone being such a key ingredient one of the deciding elements that makes up the difference between male and female behavior and um, you did kind of examine that in some ways in delusions of gender um, the previous book that you wrote and you were looking at babies when they're born and whether they have certain preferences for different toys uh, and whether because as a baby they don't yet have those social biases and norms programmed into them whether they have an, a kind of innate 
response to go for a certain, you know, male type of toy versus a certain quote unquote female type of toy. But then you also kind of expand on that in testosterone Rex and really go into such great detail about how we have become so fixated on the role of testosterone to predict things like males, so-called cavemen behavior, being promiscuous, taking more risks, being more aggressive. I wonder if you could share with us that foundational idea that you look at in the book about testosterone and its role within the human species. So yeah, quite, as you say, in delusions of gender, I was, I was focused on claims that the sort of early or prenatal hormones in particular testosterone pre-wire different kinds of masculine and feminine interests. And I was focused primarily on the kinds of preferences that are drawn on to explain later occupational gaps between the sexes. So, you know, why do we have many more male physicists and many more female nurses? Um, But in Testosterone Rex, I, I guess I wanted to continue the story by looking at what's attributed to the fact that males on average have much higher levels of testosterone circulating in the blood. And as you, as you rightly say, we kind of attribute to testosterone, you know, what we think of as being quintessentially masculine behavior. So being sexually libidinous, being competitive, being status seeking and being risk taking. So what I wanted to do in Testosterone Rex was to really take a closer look at this this core idea that testosterone drives masculinity. And as with most popular and sometimes scientific ideas about sex differences, always the, the story is much more complicated and much more interesting than the kind of standard simple one. So one way to start is to say, well, think about the differences in behavior that we're often drawing on testosterone to explain. Now, there are often differences between women and men, but they tend to be much smaller than the differences in testosterone. So, for example, if you're looking at, let's, let's say, financial risk taking, and I'll choose that example because, you know, sometimes people blamed the global financial crisis on the fact that there was too much testosterone (laughs) in the financial system. And, you know, sometimes I think people are using that expression metaphorically, Mm. uh, but actually sometimes they're using it literally. Uh, They're saying, you know, there was something about the sort of hormonal status of men or that high testosterone was sort of literally driving this high risk financial behavior. But actually, when you look at the, the evidence on differences in financial risk taking, they're really small. And in fact, you don't always see them. So you don't see them in particular kinds of financial risk-taking tasks. If you present in particular kinds of ways and you don't see it uniformly across different countries. So, you know, this already creates a bit of a problem, you know, across the world, men have much higher levels of testosterone than women on average. And yet there's all this variability. So there's clearly no sort of simple, simple relationship, uh, linear relationship going on here. And then when we start to think about masculinity, it also becomes more complicated. So we tend to think about masculinity as a kind of package deal. So we think, you know, a masculine person is someone who is a risk taker, wants to have sex with lots of women, is really status seeking and competitive. But actually, when we start to look at masculinity in people, like, sure, there are average differences at the population level. But when we look at individuals, we find that people don't fall along this kind of continuum. There aren't even sort of two dimensions. So it's not simply the case that you can have sort of people who have both masculine traits and feminine traits or 
or vice versa, but rather that people are, people are complicated. Uh, it's been described as people having a mosaic of combinations of masculine and feminine characteristics. And in fact, even if you break down something like risk-taking, you can start to see this sort of the idiosyncrasies of the kinds of patterns of behavior people show. So somebody who is really comfortable taking financial risks may not be interested in taking physical risks or uh, social risks, for example, and vice versa. So you start to see like, you know, this simple story, well, high testosterone drives risk-taking and that's why men are more risk-taking. Again, it becomes complicated. If that's the case, if, if testosterone is a sort of powerful dictator of risk-taking ability, how does it create someone who takes financial risks but not physical risks or, or vice versa? And of course, again, often when you the kinds of um, risks that you look at, again, the differences that you see between men and women can often be quite modest and, and contextual. So we've already had this kind of complication that makes it basically impossible to say that in a kind of very simple, powerful way, testosterone is driving masculine behaviour. When you actually look at the complexity of what testosterone does, it becomes unsurprising that this is the case. So, you know, testosterone does affect the brain in a variety of ways, but the circulating level of testosterone, so this thing that differs a lot between males and females, is just one variable in a very complex system. So it's possible that other parts of the system may also differ between the sexes in ways that to some degree counterbalance men's higher average circulating levels, for instance. So, you know, for testosterone to act on the brain, it's acting via receptors in the brain, for example, and the sensitivity or the number of those receptors may be different. So there are different ways of kind of tweaking the system dials and actually different species might tweak those system dials in different kinds of ways. Another thing that we know from research is testosterone is just one of many factors that feeds into decision-making. So even in some non-human animals, social context and experience can override its influence on behavior or stand in for testosterone's absence. So one really striking example of this was a study with rhesus monkeys, I hope I've got that correct. And the researchers were interested in the effects of what is essentially a kind of chemical castration on male sexual activity. So all the males were given a, a treatment that was, a, you know, basically brought their testosterone down to castration levels. And then they looked to see what difference that made for their sexual activity. And what they found was that it did have quite a devastating effect on uh, sort of low status and sexually inexperienced males. But for the high status sexually experienced males, they kind of carried on <laughs> much as before, right? Mm -hmm. So even in the absence of this hormone that we think of as being, you know, absolutely critical for masculine sexual behavior, the fact that these males were high status, already had sexual experience, meant that actually even the sort of near total absence of testosterone uh, had no effect on their sexual behavior. Um, so it's these kinds of examples that force us to think about the complexity of the relationship between testosterone and our behavior. The many other kind of factors that are involved, of which testosterone is uh, but one of many, and, and thinking about individuals in their particular social context, which also, as it happens, can influence our hormonal state. So I think that's like another really key message from research looking at the links between hormones and behavior is that when we think of something like testosterone, we do tend to think of testosterone as driving status or driving behavior. But actually, 
evidence points to the relationships in the other direction. So your status can influence your hormonal state or your own behavior can influence your hormonal state. And, and that really points to a kind of a different conception of what testosterone is for. You know, we tend to think of it as driving the masculine behavior that will be necessary for male reproductive success. But perhaps a better way of thinking about testosterone is like many other hormones, it helps us to adjust to our particular situation and circumstances and sort of facilitate appropriate behavior uh, for the circumstances that we find, find us in. It actually enables plasticity and flexibility as opposed to sort of rigidity of behavior. That is so fascinating. And um, at the beginning of your book, you also make reference to other hormones and chemicals um, like estrogen and say, well, you know, it's not just testosterone that has importance. There are a whole range of other hormones and even the chemicals and chemistry that make up the world that are just as important in being influences on our behavior and the way the world works. So it seems like we do have this really interesting fixation on testosterone as almost like being a symbol or representing, as you say, this drive for power and success and dominance and all of these supposedly masculine characteristics or desires. It does bring me to one of the really interesting studies that you also cite that was conducted by Janet Evans in 2005, which was a review of 46 meta-analyses, which sounds like massive in terms of the data that she was looking at. And you really draw two interesting conclusions out of that study, which was that three quarters of these kinds of sex differences between males and females are so small that if you chose a woman and a man at random, the woman's score would be more masculine than the man at least 40% of the time and vice versa. And then you highlight what some of the larger sex differences were. And some of them were frequency of masturbation, attitudes towards casual sex, and the velocity and distance that people can throw things. Then you make a, a really interesting point, which is, well, are those characteristics essential to male and female success as CEOs, for example, in the workplace? It doesn't seem like well, that's hopefully the not. case. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very disturbing if that was the KPI you were supposed to be meeting. <laughs> it would, it would. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, I, I, one thing I should say is that, you know, my books, my books have been really interested in kind of scientific and pseudoscientific explanations of occupational gender gaps. And so I have, I have always sort of tended to focus on the kinds of behaviours that people draw on to explain, you know, why we have... Uh, you know, so many more men in senior leadership roles and why we have such, still such strong segregation between the kinds of industries that men and women work in. And sometimes that's kind of seen to be taken as a, you know, there are no, you know, to, to, to apply in a kind of the arguments I make to apply in a kind of blanket way to, to any differences between the sexes, including physical ones. So I don't think we should necessarily assume that, you know, just because you're challenging sex differences in behavior doesn't mean that you're saying that there are sex differences in the body, because of course there are. Um, but also there's no reason to, to think that there's going to be a similar kind of story for, for all sex differences in behavior. I mean, actually, I think that one thing that's quite important to think about when thinking about links between sex, body, brain, and behavior. So unfortunately, our language in this area doesn't help us think clearly about it, I don't think. So for, for one thing, we often use the words sex and gender interchangeably. 
but also we use sex to refer to do different kinds of things. Mm. And then here I should say I'm drawing on the work by the neuroscientist from Tel Aviv University, Daphne Yuel, who wrote a really interesting article about this in, in the journal Feminism and Psychology. And so what she points out is that we use sex both to refer to, broadly speaking, what kind of reproductive system somebody has. Is it a male reproductive system or a female reproductive system? But we also use the same word to refer to the mechanisms that create those two reproductive systems. So we have this kind of complicated genetic and hormonal components of sex that in ways that we don't still don't fully understand, differentiate uh, males and females to, to become you know, a, a male reproductive system or a female reproductive system. And it is a complex developmental process, which is sort of the complexity of it was actually revealed by the recognition of the fact that in what are sometimes referred to as intersex conditions or diversity of sexual development, that you don't always end up with you know, completely uniform combinations of sexual characteristics. But the point is that there tends to be this sort of assumption that if sex has an effect on the brain, it either has no effect on the brain or it has an effect and then the effect is similar to the kind of effect that it has on the reproductive system, which is to create two quite divergent and distinct developmental pathways. You know, we have a male reproductive system and a female reproductive system. So if sex influences the brain, and we know, of course, it does, and there are many studies reporting sex differences in the brain, then that also therefore creates the nervous system that we can refer to as, you know, the male brain and the female brain. And a lot of Daphne Yoel's work has been, first of all, pointing out that the effects of these mechanisms of sex, the system of sex on the brain are quite different. They operate in a quite different way on the brain than they do on the reproductive systems. And then to look at the details of what the kind of outcome is on the brain and show that it's that, I mean, her argument is that we can't really meaningfully describe brains as being kind of male brains and female brains in the way that we can refer to, you know, reproductive systems as being male and female. It reminds me that you say, and you've already mentioned, it's not like a sliding scale where, you know, on one end there's femininity and on the other end is masculinity and, you know, you fit somewhere on the scale. Even when we create these artificial scales, like if there's things like whether someone's factual versus intuitive, whether someone's a problem solver or they're collaborative, there's so many different combinations that someone can have. As you've said, you know, you can be both at the same time, in fact, or or weaken both of those traits at the same time. There's not like a simple sliding scale where someone fits somewhere. And that to me makes a whole lot of sense. They're not mutually exclusive characteristics that one must have in exchange for the other. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's where we can go go wrong, sort of assuming that they're polarised. I mean, this is the feminist psychologist Sandra Bem. She wrote a, a really important book called The Lenses of Gender, where she talks about sort of three assumptions that are really prevalent in society. And uh, one of those assumptions or lenses through which we see sex differences is gender polarisation. And it's this sort of assumption that, you know, masculinity and femininity are kind of the opposites of each other. And so that would mean that, you know, if you have masculine traits, then that implies that you don't have feminine ones. I, I actually, sometimes when I talk about this, I, I use an example from one of these books that's often sold to business leaders that's sort of arguing, you know, we need more women in senior leadership because 
you know, they have this sort of unique female way of thinking that men don't have. So if you only have men in your boardroom, you've just got this sort of one monolithic way of thinking. And they, they show this graph where there is no data on which they base this graph, but it, it, it's, it's showing the supposed bell curve of females and males on being factual and being intuitive. And, you know, of course, it shows that males are on average you know, very factual and not at all intuitive and vice versa. So, you know, classic stereotype. Mm. But, it, you know, it kind of ignores the fact that, of course, somebody can be interested in facts and care about facts and at the same time also engage in kind of intuitive processes. In fact, this is one of the uh, observations that was made by the philosopher Neil Levy when he was talking about this idea that there are kind of empathizing brains and systemizing brains and balanced brains. He gave this really interesting account of interviews with Nobel Prize winners. And, you know, a lot of them talked about the importance of intuition in their work. Now, clearly, you can't be a good scientist if you don't know facts. <laughs> you know, intuition based on a sort of lack of fact is not going to work. It's not going to win you a Nobel Prize. But, you know, clearly here, here are individuals who are describing something which did seem to be a kind of form of intuition. There, were kind of, there, was, something, there was something in there that kind of you know, they were just getting the sense of. It's really interesting reading these accounts, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, of course, that's built on facts. This is why thinking in these polarized ways, you know, you, you can be one or the other or sort of somewhere androgynous in between can actually sort of lead us astray that we sort of think of being factual and being intuitive as, as sort of mutually exclusive when, of course, they aren't. Yeah. And in your Eon magazine essay, of which we are drawing from right now, you talk about how science is done and how we perceive science to be conducted. And that there's this false idea of objectivity being the model of science where researchers simply dig facts out of nature. And you say facts about the world don't passively lie in wait for scientists to uncover them. It's impossible to do science without background theories and assumptions that influence the many decisions scientists must make, which hypotheses to test, what methods are appropriate, which populations to sample and the size of the sample, how to characterize and analyze data data, how to interpret results, which findings to emphasize. And the whole discussion we've just been having really highlights just how you can strive for objectivity in science. But there are so many other factors where it's the individual scientist and their approach and their perhaps unconscious biases that may be informing the certain choices they make when they're conducting scientific studies that then do influence how we read the results of something and how the results are then communicated out to the general population and consumed by lay people who aren't scientists. And it seems like the, the work that you've been doing and other great women scientists that we've been discussing have been doing about really looking at where the gender bias is in some of these scientific studies is critical to debunking some of these false assumptions that have been made that we've already been discussing. That's absolutely right. So as a, you know, I sort of described this, this really unhelpful view of science as sort of just digging facts out of the ground as if they were turnips. And this is not, this is not sort of anti-science or saying that there's, you know, we shouldn't trust science, but it's about sort of recognising that, you know, that scientific facts are constructed. And when I say they're constructed, I don't mean that they're kind of false or lack some kind of reliability. But what I mean is that, that scientists create scientific conclusions by making all these kinds of decisions, you know, about who's an appropriate population to study. Like we're interested in competition, 
do we just study males <laughs> or we might be are we interested in females right so we you know we've already talked about how um the assumption was that if you're interested in competition males are who you should be looking at not females okay and that turned out to be a kind of false assumption uh, it doesn't mean that the, res the, the research that was done with males was unreliable, but it meant that there was no way of producing data that could provide information about the importance of female competition. Questions about sample sizes are really important too. So I did a study a number of years ago looking at neuroimaging studies of sex differences in the brain. And I found that a lot of the studies, the majority, used very, very small sample sizes if you think that male and female brains are sort of really distinctively different, then that might not seem very problematic. But if you think that the sex differences in the brain are probably, there's overlap, there's contingency, there's complexity to it, then having a small sample size is, is going to be a bit, bit of a red flag for that not being a reliable finding. So again, you're sort of starting assumption about the extent and distinctiveness of the brains of females and males is going to determine you know what kind of sample size uh, seems appropriate what you emphasize in your findings and we've talked about that with the bateman that there was a decision to emphasize the findings from a particular you know th this set of findings that was consistent with the idea of uh, competitive males and chaste females but not the graph that that actually showed a positive effect of promiscuity for female reproductive success and look, there, there are sort of so many countless examples of this. One of my favorites is a neuroimaging study of language processing, sex differences in language processing uh, back from the 90s. Uh, again, quite a small sample size. The researchers looked at three different kinds of language processing and they found no differences between males and females for two of the three types of language processing, but they did find a sex difference for one. Now, the title of their article was sex differences in <laughs> language process, right, lateralization of language, right, so they emphasize the, the, the one finding of difference as opposed to the two findings of similarity, and that study has had, you know, enormous impact, you know, both in the scientific literature, but also, of course, in the popular literature, where it's become, you know, this idea that, that men have waffle brains and women's brains are like spaghetti and so on. And actually, overall, when you look at, um, when you do these meta-analyses and you include studies that have much larger sample sizes, you find this uh, sex difference in, in the brain and language processing, you know, doesn't appear to exist. So, yes, absolutely. There are so many examples of the assumptions that are built into every aspect of research design and you know writing up and what's emphasized what, what what gets picked up what gets traction i mean it's really fascinating actually yeah one of the critical points that i wanted to close out on with this discussion was about how pointing out bias within some scientific studies and particularly the ones we've been looking at can sometimes lead to accusations and evidence of your own apparent bias as a scientist. And that is kind of amusing to me, but um, I'm sure it's not very amusing when it's been, you know, the accusations fly around. And of course, science is a very robust field and there are many back and forth exchanges that happen, not just in science, of course, in every other kind of academic discipline, there are very strong debates and arguments to be had about whether someone's right or wrong. But I wonder if you could just speak to that from your own perspective, given that you've been working in such a highly contested area that does bring forth a lot of emotion from different people who do have very strong views, maybe they're even mainly intuitive of just, oh, well, anecdotally, 
actually, this is just how the world is. And so the fact that you're challenging that, you know, challenges my whole conception of things. How do you deal with that? And how do you respond to those reactions to your work and the pointing out of, of potential ways that things could have been done differently or better? Yeah, so look, this was really the motivation behind writing the Aeon piece in the first place. So, you know, ever since I catapulted myself into this battlefield, probably just over 10 years ago, I kind of became aware that there was this, you know, occupational hazard of doing this kind of work, which is that what you say is not really engaged with properly, but just dismissed as, ah, here's one of these feminist ideologues. They don't want to believe that biology impacts brain and behavior. And so they're working really hard to try and discredit any, any such idea. At some level, I have, to, to the extent that this was correct, clearly this is something that you should be, a worry that you should be sympathetic to. I mean, science is not going to get on very well if it's the case that people's progressive politics lead to them rejecting particular findings or theories um, not because of the evidence or an intellectual grounds, but simply because they're politically unpalatable or inconvenient. You know, this is not what should be happening in science. But of course, that's not what my work is doing. My work is pointing out, and of course, that of the work of many other people, is pointing out um, the effects of these kind of entrenched, often invisible assumptions about sex differences and how, as we've just been discussing, how they get um, built into research questions, research design, analyses, methods, uh, interpretations, conclusions, and so on. And I guess what I, what I really wanted to do in this piece was to point out that actually we're all worried about the same thing. We all want better science in this really important and politically sensitive, <laughs> to put it mildly, um, area of research. Like, I want better science, they want better science. That's really what we all want. And we're not going to get it, though, by not engaging with each other's evidence and arguments, because that's actually how science gains objectivity, is that we all kind of take a close look at the kinds of assumptions that people are making, take a close look at their methods, and so on and so forth. And then they have a bit of an argument about, well, was this the right assumption to make? Was this method appropriate? What kind of errors do you think might have been introduced? And so on. And, and, and this is the kind of way that, you know, the philosopher of science, Heather Douglas, describes it is that we, we can, by scrutinising each other's work, in coming from different perspectives, we, we can see the biases and blinders in other people's work and they can see the biases and blinders in, in our own work. And that's how we get on. And it might not be very pleasant all the time, but like that's just really necessary for science. You know, people talk about science being self-correcting. This is how it happens, right? And so if you instead start to, you know, attribute people's views to their political motives, and this, this is in both directions, whether you're, you're saying, oh, well, you're, you know, you're just a, a feminist rather than actually engaging with the evidence and arguments, then we're not really going to progress in the way that we should. So what I really want to do in the piece was talk about the way that assumptions are built into the science of sex differences, the role that implicit or explicit, explicit feminist perspectives have played in challenging some of those assumptions not on political grounds but on kind of intellectual grounds and showing the beneficial effect that that has had on the science so rather than undermining objectivity it's actually supporting objectivity 
and and saying, look, we, you know, we, we've all got the same end game in common, and and we'll get there better if we actually engage with each other on the basis of the evidence and the arguments that we're making, and leave to the side our speculations about the political motives of those involved, because it's it's really not helpful. There's enough of that going on generally. And I think it's really important for the scientific community, in a sense, to be saying, look, you know, let's leave aside the ad hominem remarks and let's talk about people's evidence and people's, people's arguments. Let's be open. Uh, let's, let's embrace diverse perspectives, even if we fundamentally disagree with them. We're probably not going to all come to a consensus next week, but it will actually help us all to, to challenge our own, own assumptions and at a community level improve the quality of the science. That seems like it's science at its best when it's um, approaching evidence with an open mind, taking the personal out of the science at the time and not engaging in personal critiques and criticism, but actually looking at the evidence that's being presented to them and engaging with it at an intellectual level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that is, you know, if you ask people who say, well, that is the norm of how science and scientists are supposed to operate. Yeah. So I'm not saying anything new here by saying, hey, no. let's not, <laughs> let's, not uh, let's focus on the evidence and arguments. I mean, this is not, <laughs> not a new idea, right? But yeah. I guess I'm just um, sort of pointing out that there's been a bit of a, this doesn't always happen. Mm. Uh, and I think the other part of it was that I think in a sense, often it does happen. So what's been really positive to me in seeing over the past 10 years or so is that this kind of critical work that comes from, you know, if you want to call it a feminist lens or a gender critical lens or whatever you want to call it, to me it seems like it is shifting much more into mainstream science. So the kind of work that previously would have been published, you know, outside of mainstream scientific journals is now being published and taken account of in the mainstream, say, neuroscience journals. There are kind of cross-collaborations. There are people who are sort of both practicing scientists and who have this particular disciplinary training or lens in their research. So they're kind of, you know, in a sense, they're interdisciplinary within, them, within themselves. And this has been a sort of really positive shift. And I, I would just not like to see that being undermined by a kind of narrative that this kind of work is somehow undermining the objectivity of science when, when actually it's absolutely the opposite. I think that's such an important message, especially because we are in National Science Week and um, it's time to celebrate science, but also highlight some of the challenges of doing science in what is a very politically charged climate. And I know that so many different aspects of academia have been put under pressure by the developments in the global climate, political climate as well. So it's um, really a challenge to keep pushing on when things like facts and and science keep being undermined by influential political leaders every day. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's so important that when you do see these debates between, for example, in the area of sex differences in the brain, but of course other areas too, this isn't a sign that there's something untrustworthy about science. This is like, this is how, how science becomes trustworthy through these disagreements, through these exchanges. It's actually evidence of what science working as it should as opposed to evidence of a sort of, of science riddled with ideological bias. So I think it's really important that people, people understand this. 
Mm, that's such a really, really important point. Cordelia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your brilliant work and the great work of other women scientists who you've really drawn on for this book, Testosterone Rex, which is, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, uh, an award-winning book, probably really the highest award you could get in science writing. So uh, I really do want to say congratulations on that. And I can't wait to see what comes from your work next. And um, it's a really is making a huge contribution to science and to society. So thank you so much, Cordelia. Thanks, Amy. It's always lovely to talk to you.